The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day, Stephen. And you know, as big as you kid me about our universe of law schools that is growing and growing, we've got a really big topic today. We do. We're actually shooting for the stars today. Oh, there you go. There you go. You've, you tipped the hand on that one. I did. <laughs> so I, should said, I should have said you shot the moon on that one. How about that? Yeah, there we go. Good. We're going to have a pun fest. <laughs> I don't think we'll go very far on that. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes, yeah. we're going to talk about space law. Who knew? Who knew that it's a real thing? Yeah, you know. I, I must confess, I didn't know that it was uh, so real that it was actually reduced to the form of, of laws that actually govern because, I, you know, I, of course I realized that original laws uh, pertaining to uh, outer space really were limited or, or created for the government's purpose, you know, to limit control or put control measures on exploration and things like that. But we're really... Uh, We've, we're in a new frontier now, aren't we? We are. You know, we could, we, we could do a whole movie show on this because really I was thinking about various aspects of space law that we'll talk about today. And every time I read one of these treaties or one of the articles about space law, a movie came to mind. Because you know, there's been mining on space, there's been planetary exploration, there have been disasters and recovery. I mean, almost every single thing related to one of the laws that have been proposed has already been done. See, Hollywood already beat us to it. Yeah, I know. They're way out in front of the storm. <laughs> so it's, but, you, but you're right, Stephen. You know, it's going to be a legal issue. I, I have some question as to how far one could argue it is one at the moment. But but a couple of things you mentioned are absolutely true. And as much fun as I think we'll have with some of the topics today, some of them are very serious. So for example, weaponization of space. Okay, now that is a treaty that does exist. And it was one of great concern. We, If we talked, remember we talked about uh, the, the fear that Russia was going to put uh, laser-guided weapons on satellites, near-Earth satellites that would 
place, well, the whole world at risk. And there have been treaties with the major space powers uh, agreeing that they would not weaponize space. So, so that, from a, a stand, uh, one standpoint of law, is very real and has, has been, I would say, as far as we know, has been followed. Correct. Yeah, that's the the, the uh, component of the prong that relates to military uh, issues and and uh, rules of engagement in terms of it, deployment and things like that. Right, and we've talked about international law, and you might think that it's and listeners might think that it's a little odd that we would go right from space law to international law, but I think what we're talking about is the relationship between governments and individuals. On this planet, uh, so these are countries we know, and the agreements between those countries are all dealt by international law, which we've addressed on this show before, which is done by treaty. But before we go too far, with that lead-in, I do want to shout out to our chief engineer, Kevin Gassman, because Kevin's dealt with an area that goes well beyond what we we do, Stephen, because Kevin actually has a radio show dealing with aliens. Right, Kevin? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Okay, so Kevin, give us a shout-out about your show. What, what do you do? Yeah, we talk uh, aliens. It's going to be on Saturdays on the Voice America Variety Channel at 3 p.m. And, and basically, it's talk about UFOs and aliens with insight and humor, and we get to play a couple songs that have alien themes to them. So there you go, Stephen. Kevin knows more about aliens than you <laughs> are ever going to know. Wow. Okay. So wait a minute. Spin, spin some tunes for us, Kevin. What would you, I mean? Don't play them now, but give me a little sample of what you'd play. Okay. Well, there's Elton John's "I've Seen the Saucers." Have you heard that song before? Yes. <laughs> so it's, I, you know, when you look back, you know, the Kings have a song, uh, "Mr. Spaceman." I mean, there's all these, you know, songs from way back in the day. Ella Fitzgerald has one called Two Tiny Men in a Green" or Two Green Men in a Flying Saucer." Came out in 1951. And it's all about aliens visiting planet Earth, not liking what they saw, and leaving. Gee, wow, I can't imagine great. that happening. That's yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, you've, you've used the music actually to form sort of some of the topics or subtopic areas. Is that what you're doing? Kind of, sort of, yeah. I mean, more or less the songs derive from the topics we talk about as opposed to the songs first, then the topic. So... You know, I just try to find songs that match what we're talking about. If not, we just kind of throw out just some fun, random space songs. Well, I think it's great. Tell us again, when's the show? It's on the Variety Channel? Yeah, it's on the Variety Channel right here on Voice America, and it's on Saturdays. It's a two-hour show, 3 p.m. is when it starts, and uh, it's Aliens with Gas. There's two S's there, alienswithgas.com, and that's it. Great. Well, uh, Thank you. We, we think it's a natural crossover from our <laughs> listening audience to yours. You should look for the bump in your ratings, I'm sure, by next week. <laughs> I, I will. I will. And I'll, I'll attribute to, to you guys right here. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for what you do for us, Kevin. Uh, yeah, so, Stephen, that we, yeah, the bridge there is that there's one aspect of trying to deal with laws that might deal with actual non-popular. Uh, non-citizens of Earth, aliens, but the the reality is this is all going to come back to the relationship between Earthlings and each other, and what we think the next step will be once we go past the issue of weaponization is commercialization. And yeah, and I think that's right, Mitch, and if you look historically back, I'm thinking now it was, let's see, two presidents come to mind, Kennedy and Johnson, 
uh, maybe a little bit of Nixon, would have been the time period where there was uh, competition for exploration. And I think some of the laws were derived or some of the need for treaties was, was derived because of that, like the race. So the race to space, I think, is what it might have been called at one point. But now we're dealing with private sector, right? That's exactly right. So let's let's step back to what you said. You, you hit it, the nail right on the head there. At 1960s, there was the space race going on. Uh, we were heading to the moon. We were heading to Mars. And the natural question was, well, when we get there, what are we going to do with it? What's the value? And, and we know we've had Earth-based value of, you know, I think everybody probably knows, things like Velcro came out of the, the space uh, the, the space industries here in this country it's you know changed our life on earth and yet that that came out of the the process of preparing to go to space uh, but now the question is uh, when you go forward what happens if you find valuable things out there so back in the 1960s particularly 1966 67 there was actually an outer space treaty that was enacted and the major powers, all the space powers, uh, signed on to it. Because as we talked about, a treaty is only enforceable if a government voluntarily chooses to ratify it and codify it. And so the Outer Space Treaty covers the exploration and use of outer space. And to this day, that's still the only major international law that people look to to govern things, such as the question you just raised, which is who gets to commercialize and own and profit from outer space. Right. And then I think it would help to our listeners to understand that treaties you know, differ from statutory laws also, Mitch. I think the spirit behind treaties is to get an agreement globally on certain topics. That's right. So that, for example, the Outer Space Treaty was followed up with the Moon Treaty, which turned out was not signed or ratified by the major countries. And so it's there. People look to the Moon Treaty as a, as a framework to possibly make claims. But unless your country ratified it, you have no venue. You have no place to, to make your claim. So it makes it very difficult. So we have one, the Outer Space Treaty, that was signed on, I think, 28, 29 countries, but all the major countries, uh, back in 1966, and then you have the Moon Treaty that came later that did not get signed on. So it's there with a few countries ratifying it, but not really an effective law. But the principles, which we'll really talk about as we go through today, of the of the Outer Space Treaty were that governments wouldn't lay claim to the Moon and other ex- extraterrestrial bodies, celestial bodies. Okay. So the idea was that it, they were there for the benefit of everyone. Broad, yes, mankind, humankind, everyone. But it didn't prohibit or clarify individual or corporate interests in that treaty. So isn't that interesting? A, a loophole that has been claimed by a number of companies since then that the treaty dealt with national interests, but not individual claims or corporate claims. So I bet 
as a plaintiff's lawyer, you could drive a fairly large spaceship through that. Loophole. Yeah, I mean, that's a glaring, <laughs> sure, glaring gap. And, and that's why I was referencing the origin and the history that it really related to confining government activity. And, you know, government, U.S. government, and then uh, other entities, other governmental entities across the, the planet, the world. And now we're dealing with private sector. And just as there was a race for space, now there's a, a race for exploiting opportunities or taking advantage of, I, I'm going to call it entrepreneurial. Uh, I mean, I, I read things about asteroid mining and preparation. Yeah, and, and I guess the question would be, why did this come up now? Why, if you and I decide all of a sudden, out of the blue, to talk about space law? And it, it really came up because there's a... a leading candidate to be the new head administrator for NASA. He's currently Oklahoma U.S. Representative Jim Bridenstine. And he has let it be known that he is a absolute fan and supporter of commercialization of space. And that he, as part of a NASA, being a NASA administrator, administrator, would look for partnerships with NASA, public-private partnerships, and the opportunity to commercialize space. And when we come back after the break, we'll go into more detail, but you, you hit the nail right on the head again, which is it's the mining possibilities with all of the rare materials that are thought to be on asteroids and planets that have the potential to be extremely valuable. Yeah, and I think what we'll see develop is that once there are uh, I think more empirical data or support for extracting, uh, I'm going to go with precious metals or yes. some kind of you know, commodities, then we're going to see a new race and it's going to be uh, an entrepreneurial blitz to see who can claim what and therein lies the need for, for laws, right Mitch? That's exactly right. So the, we'll, we'll also talk some about, and I'm I'm laughing already because I did go back and look at some of the previous claims that have been made under international law about the ownership of space, the ownership of the moon and the planets. And and individuals might laugh, but legal claims have been made. This is not a new idea. Uh, and yet, I must say that none of them have been particularly successful yet. <laughs> But there are countries that have been formed, there have been corporations that have been formed, and I know, I know you're going to be surprised, there's a company that will sell you a piece of the moon, the Mars, moon, Mars, Venus, if you would like. <laughs> okay, and we, now we have to look to see whether or not that's actually legal or not, and what law governs, and what kind of venue would be available to uh, offer a platform to settle disputes. So there's a host of issues to discuss centered around the private sector and the entrepreneurial race to exploit uh, the value of space, I guess, right? right? So when we come back, you're going to lead us through talking about commercialization of mining. We're going to talk about real estate ownership. Oh, my goodness. Talk about national sovereignty or international sovereignty. All right, we're headed out on a short break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio, and it's true, we're talking about space law. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio, and we're talking about space law. Believe it or not, space law has made it onto our roster. Right, Mitch? Wagner and Winnick have expanded our our knowledge of, of laws. We've gone into outer space. People have said we're spacey before, but of course... Yeah, so, you know, Mitch, when we think about space law, I think it's good to just go back, loop back, and, and I'll use a very basic definition, and that's the law that is designed to govern uh, space-related activities. But as we're about to get into, this idea of activities is one we need to really tap into because there's going to be an expansion 
and how we define activities. And of course, if there's going to be activities and competition for entrepreneurial pursuits, there are probably going to be what? Disputes, right? That's exactly right. And so let's talk about, let's just pick a topic area and then we'll drill down because I think you're going to get us pretty quickly into that issue of, of venue and, and where can you bring a dispute. So the we talked about, and you brought up the topic of space mining, near-Earth asteroids and the moon have both been in that discussion about is there is there a legal right to commercialize mining on the moon or a near-Earth asteroid? And you mentioned the exact right point, which is evidently, and I'm no scientist, but evidently there are very valuable uh, minerals and chemicals and products on the that can be mined because essentially it's the core of the earth is has similar properties so when we mine here there's similar properties on these planets and asteroids and moons so the goal is if and when we get to the point of being able to have machinery up there that can actually extract it can you own it can you can you commercialize it and the the estimates have been values in the literally billions of dollars so from a corporate standpoint it does get everybody's attention all right so so let there i've set the table of that there is going to be a dollar value of, of a huge amount that could be in play which then does generate commercial interests which then does generate the potential, as you said, of commercial conflicts. And those would be tradi- those could be traditional lawsuits, right? Company A versus Company B compete for the same interests, and historically they would find a court and argue it out, right? That's right. And but there's some problems with that, right? Yeah, there, there would be some problems. And, you know, Mitch, I think we can make some analogies to – of uh, the traditional venues where business disputes are heard in uh, a traditional sense. So, for instance, I can start with one related to intellectual property, because you invited a discussion on the value of uh, minerals, let's say, hypothetically. So, that's a tangible item that might be extracted, but it starts way back on the drawing board with an idea. You know, what's the What's the mechanism by which the minerals will be extracted? And that's an idea. So you can protect ideas. They can be copywritten and protected by copyright laws and patent laws. And traditionally, in the United States, the tribunal for that would be a court that's actually uh, held to hear specific matters related to copyright or patent. So that might be a venue for the idea issue. And let me just a very quick aside. There have historically been claims of ownership. And in fact, there's a a company right now that will sell you a parcel on the moon or Mars or Venus. And one could question, well, what could their rights be? And you've actually nailed it. They started, these are U.S.-based companies. They went and used a trademark and a copyright to protect their commercial idea in those offices. And it's on that basis that they're claiming to be able to issue what they would claim would be similar to a deed. 
But it's important to point out that the Copyright, Trademark, and Patent Office does not regulate land use or land ownership. It merely regulates exactly what you said. Ideas, documents, images, uh, processes. And so they could copyright the name of the company. They could actually, in one case, one company copyrighted their charter of ownership, the document that laid claim to their ownership of space. And that's okay. You can copyright a document, but that doesn't give the underlying principles legal weight. It just creates the document. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And you know, uh, another comparison or analogy might be uh, domain names. Um, I think that still is kind of a vibrant area where there's a race to get out and to seek ownership or control over a domain name, to get a, a domain name registered. And, and many times that would be done in anticipation of there being interest in that domain name. So I think it's somewhat similar to that. Oh, actually, that's a perfect example, you know, because the, the Copyright Trademark Office preceded the Internet, much, much to Al Gore's surprise, but the, <laughs> they, pre- <laughs> they preceded the Internet. But nowadays, you're exactly right. A domain name registration would be a, a digital uh, similarity in which if you want to have uh, lunarland.com or lunarland.forsale.com, that's got a valuable, that's got potentially a valuable name. You can register it. You can protect it. You can own the name, but that in and of itself doesn't give you legal right to the underlying activity. Yeah, that's right. So then to to loop back on uh, what issues would arise when it comes down to disputes centered around extraction of minerals, uh, now we're talking about a number of different laws that could be triggered or implicated. Uh, Well, let me just ask you, because I know you're going there. Uh, there's a bit of a problem with venue here, right? Yeah. So let's let's say number one, it's company A, company B fighting over a mining interest on the moon, and they're both U.S. companies. All right, do they have a venue? Yeah. You, okay. So my thought on that, Mitch, is that the idea and the fight happens on planet Earth. <laughs> Can we start? Oh, yeah. I was waiting for you to set up court on the moon. You wanted me to go <laughs> go after a venue in Venus so we can forum chop. Yes. You want foreign shop, forum shopping, right? <laughs> uh, what's the better venue? Mars, because there may be water there. There you go. So theoretically, you have two U.S. corporations having a fight. They would pick a U.S. court. But the That's question right. obviously would be state or federal, right? Right. And a judge is going to have to say there's some underlying law that gives them the right to bring the, vet, bring the argument to their court. And that could be a problem. Yeah, that's right. So whenever a litigant looks for a forum or a venue uh, that they think is suitable to have their matter uh, arbitrated or heard, they need to establish that they have standing. There's a topic we've talked about before. And whether or not this is the right tribunal. So typically that's based upon where the dispute arose or what law governs. And you had mentioned federal. So if it's a dispute that arises out of specific statutory language that's found in a federal body of law, 
then that would very likely give rise to a federal tribunal as being the most appropriate. So that that could possibly get you into court, but you have to have a federal tribunal. And, and that's why back in 2015, when there was legislation passed in the United States that authorized commercialization of near-Earth asteroids. Okay, there's a, it's a very simple bill, and it, it authorized, it recognized the commercialization. There was a lot of excitement in the space exploration and space mining world. Uh, there's a company called Planetary Resources that was founded based on that legislation. And what they would then claim now is that when that <clears throat> future day comes that there is mining available, that's commercially feasible, they could then go into a U.S. court on the basis of that one law and say, Your Honor, there is a court that gives right. I have a claim based on that right. It's been violated or damaged, and, and here's, here's what I would like you to do about it, right? That's right, and that would be their avenue or their means by which they can protect their rights or their ideas. And so let me throw one for that. Luxembourg, the very tiny duchy of Luxembourg, has also created a national law that encourages the commercialization of space. And their hope is that companies who want to exploit this commercialization will actually come to Luxembourg, set up their corporations, and they actually have some venture capital money that they set aside as a government to encourage that because they're very small company country with very little very few resources and they see this as the, the the future of Luxembourg and they want to create a venue where you could go to Luxembourgian courts to enforce your commercial claims wow so you have, so you have two venues possibly one under the US and one under Luxembourg as far as i know there aren't any others that have been established yet but the problem I have with this, I bring this back to you, Stephen, is so I, I've, I suggested two U.S. companies get into a fight, but a U.S. and let's say Chinese corporation get into, get into a dispute over a mining interest on a non-Earth territory, the moon, an asteroid. Where do they go? What kind of venue could they have? Yeah, so... I think they'd need to find a neutral venue, uh, and I think you're, you're raising the issue of a, of a gap area, potentially, and a dispute over what venue is appropriate. So if two different nations, two different countries are disputing over something related to, let's say, ideas and whether they can be protected or not, uh, I think there needs to be a forum that can provide objective, an objective platform. For them. So, That's right. So if it's a dispute under the treaty that those two countries signed, you'd go to the UN and, and you could have a, a venue. You know, it'd be no different than we hear in the daily news about issues related to treaty violations. And there could be sanctions in theory if there was a serious violation of one sovereign state against another and if both of them had signed on to the Outer Space Treaty. You could have, you could have a venue there. But the treaty, remember, has no aspect of it that addresses commercialization, individual or corporate. And so, so the very gap that appears to give claim to corporate interests 
is a similar gap that may give them, uh, may provide them nowhere to go with a commercial claim. So the venue, I think, is an issue. Standing is an issue. You, if you don't have a law, if you don't have a place to bring your, your claim. And so I, I would kind of summarize this piece by saying, as interesting as all of this is, as the potential grows, I'm having a hard time seeing under current law where any of these claims can get made. Yeah, I am too, especially when we take it outside and beyond the idea of copyright and intellectual property type laws also, Mitch. Another uh, related topic, and we can get into it after the break, is environmental concerns, right? Because we have mining issues here, traditional mining issues that give rise to a host of environmental concerns. Well, that's exactly right. <clears throat> same same question. It w- Absent a treaty... Even on Earth, it's you. You, you don't have a venue to go after a, another sovereign for environmental disputes. You don't have a venue to even make individual claims against a corporation, unless there's a treaty. And there are extensive environmental treaties, but we don't have any treaties that talk about the the risk of of penalties if you pollute the moon. That's Although right. I have to say, there's probably been one country that's probably left a little more trash on the moon than anybody else. Let's get into that after the break. <laughs> we'll expand a little bit uh, and talk about the environmental impact. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. Our topic today is space law and laws that govern. What are we going to do with private enterprise and laws? We'll be right back after this short break. <laughs> If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. 
But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was still dark outside It was a light coming down from the sky I don't know who Mr. Spaceman mentioned about <laughs> All right, Kevin, tell us, what did you bring us back on? Oh, that's uh, The Birds from 1966, Mr. Spaceman. Perfect. Like, see, it aligns exactly with the Outer Space Treaty, 1966. Look at that. He's hitting the mark with the same <laughs> year. Perfect. Well done, Kevin. Yeah, nice play, Kevin. So, Stephen, we talked about commercialization, and we, we kind of summarized the fact that despite the fact there's serious conversation about it, and particularly in the area of mining, the what's uncertain is where one would go if you had a commercial dispute. And that's and that I think we just have to leave as an open item to remind people that that enforcement of law first requires that there is a law. And in the absence of treaties or national laws that give you rights, you you don't have a venue to bring it into court. You have to resolve the dispute privately. Yeah, that's right, Mitch. And I think the best way to look at this is that there's no doubt that there is extreme interest uh, from the private sector in exploiting the richness of uh, things like minerals and extracting materials, no doubt about it. So there's a a race for that. Um, The question will become what happens if and when uh, there is actual uh, action taken, meaning that there's actual trips to outer space. Aha, trips. Well, that opens another aspect of... You got it. Yes, trips and tourism. Space tourism. I think I like that. Yeah. I think, there's, isn't that what Richard Branson has proposed? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think he's, I don't know if he's formally or informally booked flights. I can remember some rock stars expressing interest in uh, going to outer space. So that, that, that would become, so I, my mind immediately goes to the fact that well, nothing would prohibit that uh, that I know of under treaties or space. But the, the questions would be, what if you violate a contract? So they, they take the trip and they don't experience what they anticipated or, God forbid, there's an injury in space on one of these commercial trips. Where is that venue? You, so if you, if you don't like a trip you took to 
South America and you are unhappy with your tour company, I mean, that would be a traditional contract breach here in, the, in this country. Could you bring a contract breach for failure to deliver in space? And the answer is, uh, I'll give a guarded one, and I'm going to say very likely yes, you yes. can. Uh, and we need to stay tuned. I mean, we're laughing a little bit about the topic, um, in large part because there's a lot of unknowns. But right. the reality, Mitch, is that there's definitely a spirited interest private sector-wise, in uh, tapping into business pursuits that, that I think the data shows could very well result in uh, a lot of profit. Well, and I hate to be bring it down to kind of a boring topic, but what we're talking about is contract law. So two individuals and two corporations or an individual and a corporation have the right to enter into contracts for anything that is not in and of itself illegal. And you could bring that contract dispute into a venue, particularly if by contract you agree where the venue will be, right? So just uh, you enter into a contract now between someone in California and someone in New York. In the contract, you can agree that should there be a dispute, it's going to be resolved in under the laws of the state of California. Yes, example. you can. That's, that's absolutely correct. And that's a forum selection clause that's very, very common. And so some of the things that are unclear in the type of laws we're talking about could conceivably be dealt with by contract law and by agreement. And a court would then allow that contract dispute to be brought forward, even if it's about a topic or a delivery that's outside of the venue of the court. Yes, I think that's right. There are some limits as to uh, how... uh, how enforceable a, a forum selection clause might be. For instance, if there's exclusive jurisdiction in a forum already, you can't contract around that necessarily, or there'd be a dispute around uh, that issue. But again, there's a gap area because there may not be a forum. We've already talked about that. So speaking of forum, I do have to throw a couple of these in. So this isn't the first time this has come up. Uh, so for example, A number of years ago, a a Canadian man went into a Canadian courthouse and declared himself the owner of all the planets in the solar system. And he believed that since no one else had laid claim, he could be first. And he marched into court and laid claim and asked the court to prevent China from launching into his territory since he claimed he owned space. How do you think that went? Uh, After he was drug tested or before? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're kind of right. There was no drug testing that I know of, but the court in Canada determined that they didn't have jurisdiction, that he, he he couldn't pin it to a Canadian law in order to make his claim. So it was not... No standing? No standing. Yeah, okay. There's, in the 1930s, an individual by the name of Dean Lindsay uh, looked up at the moon and said, you know, I don't think anybody owns it. So he claimed also that he owned the moon. He claimed territorial jurisdiction over the moon, and he attempted to sell property on the moon uh, wanted to register it so he went to 
the county courthouse in Asilla, Georgia, in the United States, and attempted to file his real estate claim. How do you think that went? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm thinking they closed the window on him. Yeah, it didn't, didn't quite happen. They, they said no, that he couldn't register his land claims for the moon in the state of Georgia. They didn't have the jurisdiction. Uh, but they're not the only ones. So, so there's an actual country of Celestia that was formed. The nation of celestial space called Celestia. And it was formed in Illinois, the state of Illinois, back in 1949. And they claimed to own space. Uh, they actually filed legal claims against Russia for launching their first uh, satellites into their territory. How do you think that went? <laughs> wait, wait a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the bait. Where did they file their their claim? He actually filed it in Russia. Yeah, he did. Interesting. Uh, I'm gonna go with that. The window was shut on them again. Yes, it 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 seems that whether you're in Georgia or Canada or Russia, none of these claims have seen the light of day from a court standpoint. So. State, national, international, no luck so far. I do have to say that he, he created stamps for Celestia. He actually minted money for one gold Celeston. And when he passed away in, I believe, the 1970s, he passed on control of the nation to his daughter and son, who have the title of Prince and Princess of the Celestial Nation. Wow. So there's, you know, there you, there you have that part. Now, there has one, I, with all of those where they haven't had any success, I will suggest that there is one that has had some success. Slightly different angle, but it goes back to an earlier discussion we had. So in 1980, Dennis Hope registered the moon. And where do you think he registered it? Because, again, we, he had a document, right? So where did he go? Did he go to a trademark office? He or? did. There you go. He ding, did. ding, ding. You get full credit on that exam answer. Okay. You thought I was going to say the window was shut on him. <laughs> I did. I thought you might. This, but time, no. this time he had a captive audience, right? He did. So he registered his business, the Lunar Embassy. So he had a name. So he uh -huh. could trademark it. He could copyright the documents that he was creating. And they actually... Comes right back to what you said. They have a website under Luna, LunarEmbassy.com. And under that, they are the company that will currently sell you a plot on the moon or Mars or Venus or a number of other planets. And would you like to guess? I'm not soliciting for the Lunar Embassy. I want you to know this is not a commercial uh, appeal. But I did check to see how much would a parcel on the moon be, and you can choose a one-acre or a five-acre track, by the way. W would wow. you like to know how much it costs? Uh, is, it a, is it a per acre type of uh, price? It point? is. You actually only have two. You can either buy a one-acre or you could buy a five-acre. Two choices. And I must tell you, I, you might chuckle a bit, 
but you can buy them with a view or without. How do you get one without a view? <laughs> I, I guess it probably assumes whether you want to look at Earth or whether you want to look at space. And see, this is where Kevin would bring in the Dark Side of the Moon song, of course. Mm. But the, that you would either have an Earth view or a non-Earth view, and the apparently Earth view property is higher valued than non-Earth view property. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going one million per acre. <laughs> I sold. <laughs> oh, twenty-four ninety-nine. So for for ninety-nine, you can get a certificate showing that you've owned a plot on the moon for twenty-four ninety-nine for the one acre. I think it costs you $124.99 if you want a five-acre plot. Okay, so this is this is border, this is bordering on having a star named after you. Yes, a little bit. Is that kind of similar? I believe it is. I think that's called the Star Registry. Right, which had passed legal scrutiny. I think correct. Right. So when you go onto the websites, they say, "So how do they have the the right to do this?" And I thought it was very clever what they. They reference the Outer Space Treaty, and they actually say, well, it's legal as long as it's not illegal. <laughs> That's, that is very artfully done. Yes. And so they literally reference the Outer Space Treaty that has that same loophole that we talked about before. And in that treaty, it says they're not prohibiting, the treaty does not prohibit individual commercialization it merely prohibits ownership by between nations or by nations. And therefore, there's no prohibition by treaty to owning it. They then went to the copyright office and they trade, you know, trademarked their name, their corporation. The, they copyrighted the documents of the deeds themselves. So the format of the deeds, they can copyright. And therefore, they're, they're claiming that as their legal basis to be able to do the transactions. The yep, you know, Mitch, what I'll, I'll chime in real quickly and just say that that's actually a valid legal theory. If there's a gap in the law, then uh, legislative intent analysis comes up. And the argument would be if the statute or the governing law does not reach or prohibit this certain activity, I ought to be able to do it. This there system. you go. Well, that's, that's, that's the spirit of the argument. <laughs> so to summarize today, what, we've, what have we said? We said, well, this really is going to be a body of space law. It's, it is evolving. But for the most part, there are these giant gaps. And to the extent that there's commercialization going on, it's happening in the gaps, not in the specific law. So for future lawyers out there, I think there's a, a huge opportunity to develop your own area of law and your own expertise. How about that? Isn't it? Agreed. Well, you've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. We've been talking about space law today. As always, you can hear archives of today's show on voiceamerica.com. As we remind you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.